Good evening. Uh, let's take a moment of silence as we commence our service tonight. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David, uh, written in the context of the passage that we'll be reading from later in our service, when he was pursued by his enemies. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glory, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Did you hear that, afflicted ones? Those who suffer for the sake of Christ. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There have been no meaningless trials this week that you have faced, all for the sake of refining us so that we might declare his name louder and all the more clearly in our sufferings for his glory. He has sustained us for his sake, and we can rejoice in this truth together. Let us exalt his name together. That is exactly what we're going to do in our first song, Made Me Glad. Please stand as we sing together.
and please join me in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your might to deliver us from evil. There is no one else who can save us like you do. You see all, you hear all, and you answer according to your good purposes. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. On one level, we see this with the beauty of your design, the unique pattern of each snowflake that falls, the sweetness of fresh honey, the delicateness of the finger of the newborn, even the fingernail. These are the craft of a Lord that transcends creation. And he is a good Lord. But we see and taste the goodness of the Lord most vividly in the saving work, the deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. The radiant, righteous, holy one came to an evil people's. In our sin, we, we do not fear him as Lord. We do not seek him. We have evil tongues and corrupt hearts. And yet this righteous one died for the unrighteous. That those who would cry out his name, who would surrender their position of, of proud defiance and admit their helplessness, he would deliver them. He would give them a new heart with the power of his spirit. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We are now able through him to fear him as Lord, now able to seek him, now called radiant, righteous, holy, blessed. Heavenly Father, for us as those delivered and saved, help us to keep taking refuge in you. Protect us in the fight against our own flesh, and the evil we encounter in this world. May we be reminded that you will go on protecting us, that the work of Christ at the cross is complete and nothing can now snatch us out of your hand. May your praise be always on our lips, Lord. May your spirit be at work even tonight to refine us more in, the, in godliness and your radiance. Help us even in our weakness to listen to your timeless and powerful words and respond in a manner worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello and welcome to our evening service here at Charlotte Chapel. My name's Callum. I'm one of the ministry apprentices here. Uh, just a, a few notices for you. Uh, we are having a communion service tonight. You might have seen the tables at the back of the room. 
we're reverting back to uh, the older way that we used to do communion together. Um, if you're not comfortable um, with that, given COVID regulations or whatever, uh, don't worry, there'll be an opportunity for you to get something at the back. But the normal way of doing things, the stewards will come down the aisle and will serve out as we go along together. Uh, our week of organized events to invite our non-Christian friends, colleagues, neighbors, uh, family members, uh, kicks off uh, next Sunday as part of our Passion for Life week with our guest speaker of Michael Otts. Uh, details of all the events have been emailed out as part of the MailChimp. If you've not been included in that, do get in touch with the office. But in preparation for this week, we're going to have a week of prayer where we're gathering as a church people to pray that God might be at work through it. Um, all our efforts would be in vain if it was just down to us. We need the Lord's help in this. So there'll be Zoom prayer meetings uh, most nights of the week at 7.30 with a gathered in-person prayer night here on Tuesday night at 7.30. And it'd be great if you could... Uh, commit yourselves to coming along to these. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity uh, to bring up uh, Wing Chung, uh, Su Lee, and uh, David, if you want to come up and join me here. Uh, we at Charlotte Chapel take membership uh, really seriously. We think it's a really good thing. Uh, and it's a fantastic uh, opportunity uh, for the elders to uh, commend these new members to us. Uh, membership is not a, a passive thing like a membership of a club that you might go to, but active participation. Um, it also gives a clearer picture of who we can serve alongside in the church um, and who the elders can also care for more clearly. And in the spirit, the elders are very happy to commend Wing, Sue, and David into membership. And we have a book and a verse for you. Liam, do you want to take care? Okay, thank you. For David, first of all, uh, your verse from 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Welcome, brother. God bless. And for you both, uh, for you, Wing Chung, Philippians 1, 9 to 11, this prayer we looked at a few weeks ago. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And for you, welcome, brother. And Su Ling, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. Welcome. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you all. We're now going to have our Bible reading, which Wing Chung will be bringing for us. This is from 1 Samuel, starting at chapter 21. Thank you, Wing. First Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, 
the priest Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech, the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, and since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priests replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the effort. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ahimelech, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very afraid very much afraid of Akish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man, he is insane. Why brought him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on this carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and 
stay with you until I learn what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gath said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeth, with all his servants standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servants to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nab, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquire of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests, so Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck, down, struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword knob the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But Abiatar, a son of Ahimelech son of Ahitab escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure.
to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. Thank you, Wang. We're going to sing again. Uh, another Psalm of David, Psalm 57, starts with him saying that he takes refuge in God. There really is no safer place uh, from whatever disaster he might face. And our next song is going to pick up this theme, uh, describing God as a tower of refuge and strength. Please stand to sing with me, shout to the Lord.
Well, evening, everyone. Why don't we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. We're going to work through this passage uh, together just now. And uh, let's pray uh, as you find your way there. Our Father, uh, we find ourselves praying and singing with glad hearts about the fact that you're our comfort, you're our shelter, you're our refuge. These are all things that we have come to know and love and enjoy because we have read about them in your words and heard them preached. Uh, Lord, we pray that even as we think on those matters now, looking again to you, that you would speak, that we would learn, that we would build up, be built up and to know and live in accordance with what you say. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you ever read passages like uh, those we find in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 and ask in your daily Bible readings, for example, what on earth does this have to do with me? Some say, this is weird. Uh, others say, well, it's just dull or irrelevant. But actually, one thing I do want to highlight for you is something that the New Testament says in the book of Romans chapter 15, verse 4. I'll have it on screen for you says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now that transforms a passage like this. It gives us encouragement, but what kind and what kind of hope does it stir in us? Well, just this. This is a passage that says the Lord saves his anointed king from his enemies and makes him a refuge for his people. That's what's happening back then in David's life and is a faint echo of the greater truth or the greater application of that very statement in the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to work through tonight. The encouragement for us as a result of that is to find our refuge in Jesus and be safe with him. Let me just give you a little bit of catch up for the story so far. These chapters in 1 Samuel are basically charting the rise and fall of uh, David and Saul respectively. Remember, the kingdom has been torn from Saul. It's been given to David. David's official rule has not yet come to pass. Instead he, of inching closer and closer to the throne, he seems to be driven further and further away from it. Uh, Spear-chucking Saul is bent on killing this so-called son of Jesse. He can't even bring himself to call him David. Uh, but the Lord has preserved David uh, in a way through his own agility, dodging Saul's spears, but also through genuine friendship uh, in unlikely places with Saul's son, Jonathan. Last time, uh, we left off with Jonathan saying, it's not safe here, David. So where could David go? Uh, where is safe for him? Ultimately, the answer is with God. But it's a lesson that David himself needs to learn, and I think we find it in these two chapters. I've got two points, and the first is this. The Lord saves his king. Point one, the Lord saves his king. This is verse, uh, chapter 21, uh, 1 to 15. He does two things here, really. The Lord, not only, uh, the Lord provides for his king. 
Verses 1 and 2 set the scene. David went to this place called Nob, which is the new location of the tabernacle after Shiloh had been destroyed. And he went to Ahimelech, who's now serving as the priest. He's actually a descendant of uh, Eli. And so when David approaches him on his own, you find Ahimelech trembling. He's afraid. Uh, not only curious about David's lonely appearance, but he's like, what is the captain of the guard doing with no men on his own, turning up to see me? It's like he smells trouble. David, it's not genius, is it? He claims to be on a top secret mission from the king. Shh, don't tell anyone. Yeah, even Ahimelech isn't falling for that. These are lies. They're lies of David, spoken by someone who is actually afraid He's on the run. They're not acceptable. David isn't perfect, so let's not think that he is. But ultimately, verses 3 to 9 provide the key to understanding what's going on here. The Lord is providing for David. He comes to Ahimelech absolutely destitute. He's got nothing. doesn't have any bread, nothing to eat, nothing to defend himself with, doesn't have a sword. But in verses 3 to 6, we find he eats some consecrated bread. It's provided for him. What is consecrated bread? Well, you can read about it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24 in particular. It's basically 12 loaves that were displayed in the tabernacle and eaten at the end of the Sabbath by the, the priests. The loaves were, if you like, a visual reminder uh, in that place of worship that God was present with his people as they wandered in the wilderness and is continually present with his people day by day. So David is given this bread even though he's not a priest, but it serves as the same kind of reminder for him. God has been faithful in the past to provide and God is faithful now even to provide. But there are two key reasons why I think he's given this bread. First of all, Ahimelech is being compassionate. He gives the bread, if you like, preferring the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Because remember, David was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He was not permitted to take this bread. But secondly, because David is the king, the Lord's anointed. And Ahimelech gave the bread knowing this. That's actually the explanation Jesus himself gives in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 27. We don't have time to turn to it just now. But Jesus talks about this very event. And in this event, he sees not just a compassionate purpose to the law being worked out, but a demonstration of what it means to truly be the Lord's anointed one. For back then, it was David, the, uh, the Messiah, the anointed one. But for Jesus, it was a demonstration that he was the authoritative Messiah and Son of Man. But David doesn't just receive um, bread, he receives a weapon. Verses 8 and 9 tells us about Goliath's sword, which in itself is just a sign of victory. It is a sword that brings great confidence to all who see it. Verse 8, David says, do you have a sword? I'm on such an important mission that, I, oops, I, I forgot mine, he says. He, it's like a painter that's forgotten his paintbrush. Uh, I'm here to paint your living room. Can you get any brushes? It's bizarre. But Ahimelech says, uh, yeah, as it happens, I've got Goliath's sword. You know, the one you defeated, like David would forget, fighting him. 
But the point in all this is that it's drawn attention to the sword as if to say, look, any sword would have been a magnificent provision of some kind for David. But Goliath's sword was God's provision. To David, to his enemies, to his people, it would be a visual reminder that it is God and not the sword who saves. And that's exactly what David drew attention to in his pre-fight speech with Goliath back in chapter 17, verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. What a great lesson for us to learn. The Lord provides. He provides for his king in all the ways that he needs. And of course, before we apply it to ourselves, we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, our heavenly father, provided for his son, during his earthly life. Jesus, like David, was pursued by people who wanted him dead. That's what was happening with the religious leaders of his day. The Lord provided for him as he moved from place to place, the one without, uh, who remarked that foxes have their holes and swallows have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, he moved around and had food to eat. And certainly the weapon of his defense was no actual sword, except they probably did have one, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But it also reminds us that the Lord provides for us. He has provided a Savior for our sins primarily, Uh, not a, a sinful Savior like David was with his lies and his deceit, but a sinless one, as Hebrews 1, 3 tells us, the radiant Son who sustains all things by his powerful word, has provided for us that which we needed the most, purification for sins. And then he supplies everything we need for living a godly life. He has given us the divine power that we need to do the things he calls us to do. That's 2 Peter 1 verse 3. And who can deny that he provides for us daily bread for our ongoing sustenance? Indeed, as he teaches disciples to pray, He encourages us to pray for such provision. Can I ask, who do you look to to provide for all your needs? Yourself? Um, Are we really that self-sufficient that we can depend upon ourselves in that way? I don't think so. But maybe we become codependent, dependent on someone else to provide for us in different ways. But who provides life and breath and everything else for us? But God, the Lord provides, and in this passage, we find a reason to praise him for that. Of course, amid the encouragement of this, you've got that little ominous note in verse 7, don't you? I mean, if this was a movie, the music would change to some kind of sinister tune, like, because, like some kind of Satan um, lurking in the shadows, watching, waiting, we find Ahimelech's captive, a Doeg the Edomite. He's basically a merciless mercenary doing Saul's work. It's only a momentary glance right here, but it's enough to make you shudder, at least it should. But the second way that we say that the Lord saves his king is that he not only provides for him, but he actually delivers. There is salvation uh, for his king. And that's the scene that's set in verse 10. David flees, if you like, from Saul to Gath. Gath, where Goliath's from. 
this Philistine city, Goliath's hometown, and to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, what on earth is he thinking at this moment? What is he doing? This is, I don't know, I struggled to come up with some kind of comparative illustration. It's like a Rangers fan walking into a Celtic fan club AGM. You know, this is, this is not going to go down well. This is actually, to be fair, the last place that Saul would think to go looking for David, mind you. I mean, but does David enter Gath incognito? Is he trying to sneak his way in? We don't know. The text doesn't actually tell us. But whatever happens, it does not work because he is recognized. But verses 11 to 14 tell us that the Lord delivers David. And in David's eyes, his deliverance from the hands of these Philistines is nothing short of miraculous. But it's a bizarre story again. It's partly related to a song that actually the same song that drove Saul, the king, mad when he heard it a few chapters ago. Here the Philistines in Gath recognize him as the king and the champion of the people of Israel. They seize him and take him to their king and they talk about this song. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. Uh, David has slain his tens of thousands. I mean, it's, that song has got over the borders into Philistine Terry. must have been a, a catchy tune. But David responded in verse 12 to their, I know you with a very with a heart deep fear. He was very much afraid. Now you say, well, I don't see that in chapter 21. And that's because you don't see that in chapter 21. But when you turn to Psalm 56, a song that David wrote about this very episode, you read it. Psalm 56 is a song about David's arrest. He's attacked, he says. He is fearful. He is afraid. He is tearful. But he cries out to God for mercy in that psalm and trusts in God to deliver him. So that means that when you turn to verses 13 to 14 and you see David's acting, pretending to be insane, and again you think, what on earth is he thinking at this very moment? Well, you realize that he's actually not just a very good actor because he manages to convince them, but he's still a sinful person. He's entirely dependent on the Lord for his deliverance. I mean, how desperate do you have to be to feign insanity in order to try and get out of a situation? The odd thing about it in verse 14 is that King Achish is convinced by David's fake insanity and sends him away. As far as he's concerned, there are, oh, I've got too many people who are like this in Gath. Let's just send him away. But he's missing an opportunity to kill Israel's champion and make a name for himself. He's like King Herod with Jesus in front of him. Ugh, I send him back to Pilate. But then afterwards, David wrote another psalm, Psalm 34, about how it felt to be delivered, to be walking free from Gath, Goliath's sword over his shoulder, rejoicing in the fact that how did they get out of that? And Psalm 34 is this glorious song about David's, of David rejoicing in God's deliverance and goodness. And David calls God's people to be blessed by taking refuge in him. And actually, and interestingly, in the same psalm, 
He talks about turning from evil, including lying, in order to do good. All of this shows that the Lord delivers first his Christ, his king, from the hands of his enemies. Now, unlike David, Jesus was not afraid of his captors or of his death. Actually, we see him walk very courageously towards it. And even in Gethsemane, where he, his sweat fell like drops of blood, still he resolved, um, arise, here comes my betrayer, and walks out to meet them himself. He planned it in eternity, and together with the Father and the Spirit, trusted that he'd be delivered. Except this time, not from death, but through death. And the Lord promises the same deliverance for us. It's salvation, really. He promises us deliverance from our enemies, too. Because in Christ, his victory is our victory. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Truly, like David did, we have a deliverer whom we can call on in times when we're afraid in life or in death. Now, the Lord's providence and deliverance in the life of David tells us much about what God has done in Christ, but what does such providence and deliverance mean for God's people? What did, what did David's deliverance mean for the people of God back then? And what does it mean for us today? Well, that's what we're looking at in point two. It shows that the Lord's king is actually a refuge for his people. The Lord's king is a refuge for his people. That's what we see in chapter 22. Now, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22, you find that the Lord gathers the needy around his king. So, verse 1 sets the scene again. David flees Gath and this time goes to Adullam. And the Lord is starting to gather people to David. Rather than being joined by some kind of band of elite warriors, David is joined by a pretty diverse bunch of people, as we saw from our reading. He is the one who, in verses 1 and 2, is actually the refuge for the fearful, the needy, and the discontented people. His brothers are there. Those who once mockingly ordered him back to his sheep look to him to be their shepherd, to be their protection. The rest of the 400 were made of people who were distressed, in debt, deep down unhappy in their circumstances, and all of them together around David, the true king and commander. Then verses 3 and 4, we find David finds refuge for those who are especially vulnerable, and that's his parents. Um, he's concerned, the son of Jesse. Jesse's name has been thrown around an awful lot by Saul. So he takes his parents to Moab. It's not in Israel. And he pleads asylum on their behalf. It's quite a journey to take them from where he was and to go east and travel across the Jordan to deliver them to Moab. But Moab is outside of Israel, but it's ideal because it's the home to David's, it was the home of David's great-grandmother, Ruth, the Moabites. For a time, David remained in that stronghold in Moab. It was, must have been some kind of protection for him as well as for his parents, um, feeling no doubt personally safe, but the Lord called him back from there. It's not right for God's king to be outside of God's kingdom. So through the prophet Gad calls David back, don't stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. It's risky to obey such a command, of course. 
given Saul's hot pursuit. But doing hard things are not so hard when you hear the shepherd's voice guiding you. And when we're reminded that he himself is with us. That's what David knew as he went back into Israel. And David needed that encouragement because these are wilderness years and these threats are very, very real as we'll see. Well, as we see right now in verses 6 to 19. Because in contrast, we find the rejected king gathering the wicked around him. Now, Saul's court is in session. When you look at verse 6, it's on the hill of Gibeah. He's in the high place, and he's seated, and guess what? Saul has his spear in hand. Everybody watch out. But Saul, who was called as king to fight on behalf of God's people, in this passage, we find him fighting against God's people. In verses 7 to 10, Saul is lambasting his Benjamite henchmen for conspiring against him. Even the guys that he's gathered in to be his motley crew are not doing the things that he wants them to do. Even they're being put off by this king's own madness. But verses 9 and 10, we find Doeg the Edomite, not an Israelite, taking the opportunity to work his wicked intent and grasses on Ahimelech the high priest who gave David the consecrated bread and Goliath's sword. And Saul is not happy. So he accuses Ahimelech of the same conspiracy in verses 11 to 19. But Ahimelech reminds the king of what is true in verse 14. Look with me. He reminds him of the I know about David. Sure. Yeah. Is this the first time I've prayed for him? No, of course not. But he is, he reminds Saul of the loyalty of David and the respect that David commands, even from within Saul's household, probably a nod towards Jonathan. But murderous Saul has no ears to hear anything good or anything true about David. In verse 16, the king turns around and says to Ahimelech, you will surely die, you and all your family. Now, what an absolutely wicked command this is. Uh, even as, you know, it's so wicked that even his henchmen won't do it. Kill the priests of the Lord. What? But Saul, verse 18, seeing that they won't do it, orders Doeg, the Edomite, who, as a non-Israelite, is not precious in the slightest about the Lord or his priests, carries out this massacre. And to wage war on his people is to wage war on God. It's a, you see, it's another part of the downward curve of Saul. It's another aspect of his horrible demise. Saul, who was meant to be the protector of Israel, has become the destroyer of Israel, the anti-king, if you like, the anti-Christ himself, stood alongside ignominious company of Pharaoh, Balak, Balaam, Haman. That's why this closing note on David is so, so good for us in chapter 22. It's a, like, if you like, a first ray of sunshine after a dark and stormy night because the one God saved became a safe place. That's what we find in verses 20 to 23. The people of God are truly safe with God's true king. So David is in Adullam, 
Abiathar is the only priest from the city to escape the massacre. And he goes and he tells David what has happened. And David uh, treats the sole surviving priest very differently to the way that Saul was going to. There's no accusation. In fact, David takes some responsibility for his actions. But ultimately, one Abiathar, who is under the sentence of death, finds life and preservation in the safekeeping of the true Messiah, David. And don't miss the contrast. Saul had said, you shall surely die. But David says, verse 23, you are safe with me. The first is what sin says to us. The latter, the second, is truly what Christ says to us. Friends, do you see the pattern in all this? Do we see Christ, the true king in these passages? We're meant to. Because what God does for and through David is just the type of thing that God does. And when we see that, we're better able to understand what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christ our king is our only hope for safety. Uh, we live under the threat of someone worse than Saul. His name is Satan. Unbelievers live under this threat. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan, the god of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers and stopped them from seeing the only one who can give them the safety that they truly need. And believers live under the very same threat as well. Revelation 12 and 13 tells us that Satan wields whatever sinister power he can muster against the church, looking to devour it. But we know that Satan's evils are not the work of a winner, but the death throes of a loser. We live as victors with Christ, our champion. Satan has been defeated uh, Satan has been defeated, and Christ has defeated the enemies that we know through the cross, triumphing over them, as the book of Colossians says, and spectacularly so, to the point that we, this side of the cross, realize that we are safe with Christ. And we're not only safe with him, he gathers the needy around him. Where? Well, spiritually speaking, in heaven, but presently, together, in gatherings called local churches, a diverse bunch of people who recognize, above all, their neediness, their need to be rescued. In fact, it's only when we truly grasp our neediness that we truly grasp what Christ's death actually means. And it is only when we grasp what God is working and building uh, when he gathers us together, that we recognize the importance of a church and of being together. And I wonder, as we close, if Christ is your king, if you're here tonight and you would say, well, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm just kind of exploring what this Christianity thing's about. If, I want to say to you tonight from this passage that if Jesus Christ is not your king, then you're not safe. Because you're only safe if you find your refuge, your shelter, your comfort in him.
In fact, your biggest issue isn't with any enemy of God's, but with God himself. Because Jesus provides ultimate security from God's just judgment against sin. A judgment that all who do not trust in Jesus face at the moment of their death. But Jesus, God, sorry, God provided that security by sending his son in love. And Christ died to pay the penalty for the sin of all who would trust in him in that cross and to become that refuge. And that security is only obtained through faith, through believing in Christ. And that's my encouragement for you tonight. Believe, be baptized, turn from sin, trust in him. His yoke is easy and truly his burden is light. But what about Christians? What does this mean for us? Well, Christ has united us together in him. And our refuge is in Christ also, on an ongoing basis, in our neediness and worry and our trials about life or death or faith or everyday things, Jesus Christ is our safe place, our security. But do we run to him in our need? Or are we wandering off in the illusion of self-sufficiency? I think it's so easy for sorrowful, anxious, despairing people like us to find refuge in other things, in drugs and alcohol and Xbox and pornography and shopping and anything that comes provides some kind of escape from the anxious pangs that we feel. But ultimately, only the Lord is our refuge. And we might take, make various attempts on our own behalf to fake our way through something like David did or find our own way out of it. But the Lord alone is our refuge, and there is nowhere safer than to hide yourself than in him, to pray to, to trust in, and to wait for his deliverance. If you struggle with the whole idea of refuge, I think the war in Ukraine should help us understand this a little bit more just now. More than four million people have fled because of an enemy that threatens death. Where do those people go? Well, they go to other nations. But what do they find? Well, we've seen it on the news, haven't we? I mean, I saw just two weeks ago those images of people getting off the train in Germany uh, to people standing there with placards saying, we can take three, we can take five. There is a home for you. Embracing absolute strangers but taking them home to a safe place. And that's what we find in Christ. To all who believe in him, he says what David says. You are safe with me. Let's bow our heads together. Take a moment in the quietness to pray in response to what we've just been listening to. Find your refuge in Jesus. He is our Savior and the true King.
our Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who provides, that you're a God who delivers, who saves. You've proven that in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He proved it by his death and by his rising. And we know it because of your words to us. Oh Lord, help us to believe and to put these beliefs into practice, we pray, as we extol and praise your name for your great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we come to the Lord's Supper together, let's stand and sing, Behold the Lamb.
Well, as we come to take uh, bread and the cup, uh, we do so following the instructions of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an act of obedience where we take tangible, physical reminders of his body broken and his blood shed to remember the gospel. That's what this is for. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice at this gospel, you're invited to participate. If you're in good standing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're encouraged to participate in taking bread and this cup to remember the Lord's death together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And we also ought to give thanks for the incredible grace that is ours from the Lord Jesus Christ, who invites us to take it and share. Let's bow our heads and let's give thanks. Our Father, we do thank you indeed for this opportunity to consider again our hearts, to do so in your presence, Lord, when we see your great love and the gift of your Son, his body and blood broken and shed, then we see the foolishness of eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. Lord, we know we've sinned several times without number, actually, and been guilty of all kinds of pride and unbelief. Uh, we have committed those uh, things that we know are wrong, and who can count the sins of omission? Lord, we have failed to find your mind in your words and neglected to seek you in our daily lives. And like David in Psalm 51, we say, I know my sins and my transgressions are ever before me. But how we bless and praise you that these things will not stand against us. That will not stand because all of these sins have been laid on Christ. And he has paid the penalty for these sins, the penalty we deserve to pay. And we are so thankful for that. Your grace, your mercy, your love are unspeakably good to us. And Father, we do pray uh, with thanksgiving for the reminder that you give us in a moment like this uh, to remember the gospel, to see what the bread signifies, to see what the cup signifies, and to eat and drink in faith and remember and rejoice in the gospel. Your salvation truly is life to us, eternal life, in fact, and we praise you for it. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as Callum said at the start of our service, we are reverting back to the way that we've done it before. We weren't planning to do it this way, but we're going to do it this way. Uh, as 
each, uh, as the trays come to you, please take a piece of bread and hold on to it, because once everyone has been served, we're going to eat together as a symbol of our togetherness in Christ. If you're not happy about receiving or passing on a tray, that's totally fine. Be, feel very relaxed about it. Um, as those who are serving bring the trays down, there are a couple of trays at the back table if you would like to go and take your own. That would be a great time to do it. So uh, as our uh, brothers and sisters serve us with bread, remember, keep hold of it. We'll eat once everyone's been served. And over to you guys just now. Thank you. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, as the cup comes to you, please keep hold of it. Uh, once everyone's been served, we'll drink together. Thank you.
in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Good night.